Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. Um, hey, before we begin, I would love to say a word of prayer for us uh, as we begin to look at this text, but also uh, because while I love celebrating Mother's Day, I'm so grateful for my mom. I'm so grateful for the um, people who have spent time just mothering me and, and investing in me. I also know that today uh, can also be a day um, of pain for some of us. I know that uh, in a room this size that there today we are celebrating Mother's Day with a loss of a mom. Uh, I know that we're celebrating Mother's Day sometimes the loss of a child or the loss of a promise of a child, um, that today we can celebrate and we have a hard relationship with our mom or a difficult relationship with one of our children. And so I just know that uh, while today is a day of celebration of the people that have impacted and influenced our lives, I also know that there are some other raw emotions that come uh, on a day like today. And so I'd love to spend time praying uh, over you, if that is you, and then praying for our morning together. So would you pray with me? God, thanks so much for today that we get to come and gather and be your church and listen to your word and that we would be changed and challenged. God, I also know that on a day like today, there are a lot of emotions. God, there are some emotions that are, um, there's pain and there is confusion and there's disillusionment and there is loss um, and there is a hope for what will be. And God, I love that you are a God that meets us in those, that you meet us in our pain, that you comfort us, uh, that you sit with us, and that you bring hope into s situations that are seemingly hopeless. And so God, I pray right now for any individual in this space and in this room that is feeling those, God, that they would feel that you are so near to their broken hearts, God, that you are here and that you are with them, and um, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are here to walk with them through this. God, thanks so much for this morning, and uh, God, would you open our eyes to the things that you want to teach us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, like John said, we're continuing in this series, The Greatest of All Time, and I am not going to spend any time discussing LeBron James or Michael Jordan. So, <laughs> happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> but I thought I would give you uh, some things in my life that I truly believe are kind of the goats. Like, these are the things that I can unequivocally say that I, without a doubt are at the top of the list in these categories. Now, I could not think of a ton. I only have five categories that I could make. You know, John, John was helping me with this, and he was like, you like a lot of things. And so I, there's like a lot of categories. I'm like, I can't put just one thing there. But there are five that I could probably put there. Uh, so here we go. First one is the greatest movie of all time. It's a movie I have watched. I love it. It's called About Time. Has anyone seen this movie? You guys. It, they, okay, a couple hands. It is such a good movie. So About Time, fabulous. You'll just cry your eyes out, and it's amazing. But not in like a sad way, in a beautiful way. It is a beautiful, beautiful movie. Uh, the greatest condiment of all time is, without a doubt, ranch dressing. Any other ranch lovers out there? Okay. Uh, the greatest vacation destination of all time for me is just anywhere with water. Like I just want to see water of some sort. Um, we don't have, I don't see water in our house and John's always like, I can like, do you want me to just like hold the hose up? Is this like, you know, enjoying for you? I'm like, no, that doesn't count. Um, the greatest television series of all time, West Wing. Any other West Wing fans out there? Anybody not, never seen West Wing? What? <laughs> All right, well, you've got a lot to do and watch these, uh, over, this, over the summer. Uh, and then this is debatable, but it, because I'm in this season, you know, John was like, you know, he, he, he put this out and he's like, this is what I think would be your greatest Saturday of all time. And I was like, I, you are probably right in this season. So the greatest way to spend a Saturday morning for me is sitting in a portable chair watching my kids play sports. 
I love this. I love it because I love being outside. Uh, I love competition. And so I'm not like the mom that's like, go in and get that. You know, I'm very calm. But I just love like a good, healthy competition. I love watching my kids be active. I love just the camaraderie and the energy. And so I love doing that. So I get to do that today. I get to, after our last service, jump in a car and drive to Nina and watch soccer games. So I'm pumped. Um, but as we got into the series and started talking and looking at all the passages that as teachers we wanted to teach on, my heart just kept coming back to the very beginning of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, to this long list of blessed are you phrases. And many of us know these as the Beatitudes. So I want to spend some time just reading through these quick, and then I want to you know, be able to take a look at what I think what Jesus was trying to you know, tell us when he was reading these. So Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10 says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Growing up, I went to a Christian school, and so this passage and these Beatitudes were a common passage that we would have to memorize for our Bible class and then either have to recite them from memory at the end of the week or write out the passage in its entirety. So this is a passage I'm like, I've read and kind of looked at and, and studied, but when I was in my 20s, I heard a teaching on this series that really shifted the way that I saw this passage and this list that Jesus gave us. And in preparation for today, I've read a handful of books and studied these verses, and it's just more and more clear that these phrases that Jesus used weren't just like a bunch of random thoughts he just spouted out. But this was more of a progression of what our lives should look like as disciples of his. And so over and over again, I found that those who had studied this passage in depth describe it more like a ladder, that these ideas build on one another. The idea is that we'd start in one place and kind of move our way through that these statements aren't necessarily meant to be pulled apart and kind of taken to stand on their own. Now, while they could, each one of these statements could kind of stand on its own, but that's not how they were meant to work together. Charles Spurgeon writes about the Beatitudes. He says, The seven golden sentences are perfect as a whole, and each one occupies its appropriate place. Together, they are a ladder of light. And so when we take a look at what Jesus is saying in these statements, we see that each one of them is dependent on the one that went before it. And in some ways, these statements are a progression of our heart's journey in our relationship with Christ. So before we dig into the statements, I just want to point out a couple of things. First, we're going to see over and over again this term, blessed. Now, some translations in the Bible uh, change the word to read, happy. But I think that that takes out the deep richness of the word that Jesus was using in these statements. There's actually an author, John Stott, he actually argues that using the word happy is seriously misleading because happiness is a subjective state. It's kind of here one moment and gone the next. But Jesus is not making a subjective statement. He's making an objective pronouncement about people. He is not declaring, hey, here's what you might feel like if this is you. He's saying this is the truth of God's promise and provision for you and what God thinks of you. And on that account, you are blessed, whether you feel it or not. And then also when Jesus uses this term blessed, I want you to pay attention that, it's, that he uses it in the present tense. It's not blessed will you be 
or blessed, one day you will be blessed. But now, blessed are you when? This promise and this declaration was for his listeners then. And it's for his listeners now. And so this morning, I want to follow Jesus' progression, his latter statements, as we look to what our lives are meant to reflect as his followers. So he starts off and he says, the first thing, um, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that kind of starts the bottom of our ladder. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit, and why on earth would this be a blessing? Being poor in spirit is simply the realization that we need God's help, that we can't do life on our own, that we have searched and we've tried to make sense of this world and we cannot. Poor in spirit is the awareness that there is a gap between who we want to be and who we are, and we just can't figure out how to bridge that gap. And I love that Jesus starts here. He acknowledges the truth that we all reach a point that we are spiritually empty. And we recognize that as much as we wish we were, we are not in control of this world. And I love to think as he said this first word, as he sat down, these are the first words out of his mouth, mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit. That the, some of the listeners that were listening that day, maybe, ha, maybe they had the tendency to think of themselves as more highly than they should. And this is an awesome reminder, the great equalizer, that at the beginning of our relationship, there's this humble reminder that there is blessing of being poor in spirit. And maybe for those listeners who had a tendency to think of themselves as maybe not worthy of God's love or God's provision, this is a beautiful beginning. See, they kind of had to sit there thinking, I know poor in spirit. You don't have to describe what being poor in spirit is. I feel it every day. And when Jesus said these words, I have to imagine like they sat up a little straighter knowing, hey, I know what it's like to be that. I'm, I'm empty, but now you're calling it a blessing. Why? And I love what I think Jesus was doing is he's clarifying that God, at the beginning, God wants nothing from us. We can't impress him with our deeds. We can't do a song and a dance to make him turn his eyes upon us. He isn't looking to us for what we bring to him. He wants to start off by showing it's not about what we bring. It's about what he offers. We come offering nothing. And what a weight off our shoulders in a world that we feel the need to constantly prove ourselves, prove that we are competent or worthy or enough, God says, when you are poor, when you have nothing to offer me, when it's not what you have but what you don't have, that is the first point of contact between us and God. And he culminates and it says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who recognize that you are spiritually empty because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And notice here again the tense he uses. He says it is the kingdom of heaven. This is present tense, not future tense. The kingdom of heaven will be theirs now. This isn't a promise for the future. This is a promise for today. When we come to this humble beginning of recognizing that we are poor in spirit, Jesus says we meet face to face with heaven. And when we think about it, heaven at the core of what it is is union with God a place that we come together with the perfect and holy God, our Father and our Creator. So here in our ordinary lives, heaven comes when we see and are aware and experience God's presence, when our eyes are open for our need for him and he meets us where we are. Jesus says, when you are poor in spirit, when you have nothing to offer, you are blessed. 
because your eyes will be open to him and we will experience life with him, his kingdom come. And then Jesus builds on this statement and he says, blessed are those who mourn. He says, blessed are those who mourn. I'm going to adjust that to make sure my tower doesn't topple later. Um, For they will be comforted. See, once we recognize that we have nothing to offer, And that God in his perfection, he meets us in our mess. Then we kind of begin to be aware, oh man, not only do I have nothing to offer, I come kind of in my filth and in my imperfection and I stare at your perfection. And so our natural response should be to have this mourning over our own sin. And we don't really like this part of our faith. We don't like talking about sin or how we are not perfect. Our society is like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm like, maybe not perfect, but like almost perfect. I want to keep everything sunshine and rainbows too, believe me. But if I did, I would miss the profound comfort and blessing of feeling the weight of my brokenness, of feeling the weight of my sin, of recognizing what is in me that is destructive and what it produces and that the sin keeps me separated from God. We've gotten a lot of rain this spring, and it has almost driven me mad. Because if you know me, like weather and sunshine are super important to me. So rainy days just, I know some people like them, but they just feel like stifling and sad. And I have a really hard time not being internally irritated by the rain. But the other day, I walked out into my backyard, and I just like stood in awe of the vibrant, vivid green color that was in our grass. And Friday, I drove around the city running errands, and I was just marveling at the beauty of the colors all around. And it's almost as if God reminded me, that's what the rain does. This wouldn't happen without the rain. Does anyone remember a few years ago, we had a July that had not one day of rain in it? And at first, we were all like, yay, we don't have to mow, and it's like pool day every day, and it's all the sunshine. But after a while, do you remember what it did to the grass? The grass turned like straw. It was like crispy and brittle. It hurt your feet to walk on. You had to have shoes on it, and I love bare feet walking in the grass. And so I just, like this rain, we thought it was amazing, but it really, at the end of it, we were like, please just rain and give us some water. Rain, as unpleasant as it can be, is the only thing that produces growth. And similarly, sometimes seasons of mourning, sometimes sitting in our despair over the brokenness of our life and the brokenness of our world, as strange as it sounds, produces growth in us. Robert Browning Hamilton has his famous poem, I Walked a Mile with Pleasure. It says, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. When we take the time to let our hearts feel the weight of our sin, we grow in humility. We grow in understanding. We grow in gratefulness for all that God has done. We grow in compassion and we grow in awareness. We recognize that we need Christ to step in. And then Jesus says, not only to top it off, not only will our mourning in some ways bless us, will it produce growth in us, but he says, you will then be comforted. God's like, I'm not going to leave you alone in that. You will be blessed, and then I will step in. And David, who is no stranger to understanding this weight and this mourning, he even records in Psalm, he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David had experienced the deep pain of understanding his sin, but he also understood the deep blessing of God meeting him there, and he calls him the lifter of my head. 
And if we miss this step, as uncomfortable as it is, we miss seeing the promise and we miss knowing God's comfort. We miss seeing that we serve a God who wants to meet us where we are and sit with us for a while. And then to build on this, Jesus says, next he says, blessed are the meek. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when we tend to see this word meek, we tend to replace it in our minds with the rhyming word, which is weak. But meek is, does not mean weak. When used, actually, in this context, in the original context, this word is translated to a word that also means what you would do with a, with a wild horse when it is tamed and bridled. It would be called a, they, it, going through the process of meekness or being a meek horse. A wild horse is nothing but weak. It is strong and it is powerful and it is out of control. But when it has gone through the process of meekness, it is tamed. Meekness is not weakness. It is strength and power that is under control. Meekness is not contained to a personality type. You could be soft-spoken and quiet and have not an ounce of meekness in you. Or you could be loud and rowdy and still display incredible meekness. Meekness is not a personality. Meekness is a character development trait. Meekness is self-control. Meekness is recognizing that there is strength in us and then harnessing it for good. Meekness is not void of passion. It's not soft-spoken. Meekness is a matter of the heart. Meekness is, is being teachable. It's not being resistant to being taught or challenged. Meekness is receptive to what God is teaching us and looking for more and more ways to be like him. Meekness is humility. Knowing that in our minds we are prone to elevate ourselves, but instead meekness chooses to keep our egos in check. Essentially, meekness is modeling our life after Christ's. A few weeks ago, I was out in the lobby and I ran into my sweet three-year-old friend uh, named Alyssa. And I stopped to talk to her for a minute, so she's, so, you know, she's three, so I kind of bent down to get on her level, and she stood there for a second, and then she bent down too, <laughs> doing exactly what I did. And as I thought about this later, I thought, this is such a beautiful response to what our response should be to God. When we see that he has humbled himself, that we can't help but humble ourselves too. When he stoops down, our response should only be to stoop down as well. And I think this makes so much sense in the progression of our hearts that Jesus is teaching us on. It says, he says, hey, we see, okay, we don't have anything to offer, and we are broken because of it. And what comes next is this series of humbleness, of, at, of seeing that God humbled himself, and so we can't help but do the same. And I love then that in the blessing of meekness, that his promise is that we will inherit the earth. Jesus says, hey, in allowing yourself to be kind of brought under control or tamed, so to speak, to be humbled, we essentially are offering up our lives. We're saying, you know what? Like nothing is mine. I give it all up. I, I'm humbling myself. I'm giving it all up. And then Jesus responds with this promise. Then you're going to inherit the earth. Jesus says, all that I have, everything that is mine, if you are humble, I will give to you. As the creator of life, Jesus says, take what is mine and make it yours. And only when we are humbled, only when we have this meekness, would we recognize what a gift that is. And then the next step, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. 
Have you ever been hungry? Not just like, you know, I could eat, but like, like hungry or very thirsty, like I have to have a glass of water. There is this strong desire between, be, behind hunger and thirst. When we are truly like hungry and thirsty, it consumes our minds and our bodies. When we are truly hungry and thirsty, it is all we think about. What do you hunger and thirst for? Some of you today may come in feeling maybe just this insatiable hunger or thirst and you don't know what it's for. Maybe your soul is hungry and your heart is thirsty or maybe you feel a longing for something or maybe there's a restlessness in you. And maybe you've tried to quench that thirst or satisfy that hunger with other things, with things that you know don't really last that long. And we go out on a limb and suggest that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is probably not the top of all of our lists naturally. We hunger for comfortable lives. We thirst for success and accolades. We hunger for fame or fortune. We thirst for a problem-free life. But I have found those don't satisfy for very long. But Jesus says, what if we hunger and thirst for righteousness? If we do that, his promise is that we will be filled. So what does righteousness mean then? What would we hunger for if we're hungering for righteousness? And there's a ton of different definitions. And the word righteousness is used so many times in the Bible, but essentially it boils down to this. Righteousness means being right with God and living right by him. Righteousness is living right with God and living right by God. It's hard to want to hunger and thirst for righteousness for being and being right with God and pursuing a life if we haven't already been convinced of our empty spirits, if we haven't already mourned the fact that we don't have anything to offer, and if we have not already been humbled. But if we have, if we've walked through acknowledging our spiritual poverty, if we've internalized what that means, if we've turned our hearts towards meekness, then we begin to hunger and thirst for something different. We have deep appetites that are for things of God. We want to be made right by him. We want to experience all that he has to offer. We want to live in a way that he wants us to live. It's a natural byproduct. Our desires begin to look like his. If you notice, these first three talk kind of about this emptiness, right? We're poor in spirit, and we mourn this, and we, begin, we kind of give, our, give ourselves up in humility. And then God says, now that you want to fill yourself up, don't fill yourself up with the things that you used to. Hunger and thirst now for righteousness. At our old self, we hungered for things of the world, but now, Jesus says, hunger and thirst for things that matter. And just like the things of the world that don't satisfy, Jesus promises when we long and crave for righteousness, he says we will be satisfied. We will be filled. And our desires begin to change, and this changes us. And we want to live lives differently. We want to live right by God, living in a way that is worthy of his calling. Now, did you notice that the first four steps, these are all kind of these inward changes. The first four steps are all things that God is doing inside of us. It's inward growth. But it's almost like these first four beatitudes are all inward preparation for what is next. See, God's network is never just about perfecting ourselves so we can be left alone. And he's like, all right, you're doing good. Perfect. God's work is always about helping us so that we can help reflect to others who he is. And so the next four steps you're going to see are all kind of these moving towards this outward expression. Because like once you've done that work on the inside, now let's get about making this impact on the outside. They're in direct connection on how we interact and impact people. And the first one is, is once we hunger and thirst for things 
that are right. Then he said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. These next beatitudes kind of take on this new feeling, right? That Jesus says, now once we're satisfied with things that truly matter, once we've been filled, now we begin living lives of overflow, and we begin to take this experience outward. See, once we've tasted and experienced the grace of all that God has done in us, next we get to experience the righteousness. We can't, be, we can't help but be dispensers of mercy. Being merciful changes the way that we see people. We know the difference that the grace of God has made for us, and we just want the, other people to experience that same grace because we recognize this is not anything that we've done. We came empty-handed, and God's like, I will promise you the kingdom of heaven, and we've gone through this, and we're like, okay, if you, don't have to, you don't have to come with anything either. We know the kindness that God has shown to us, and we have the appetite of being right with him and living for him, and so our hearts now overflow with mercy for others. In college, I was blessed to have some amazing men and women and might pour into my life with, in a significant way. They challenged me and prayed for me and walked with life through me, and they stretched my faith. But I had one Bible study leader in particular, um, that, and she was just crabby. Like, I don't know what other word to say. She's a cr- crabby, all, like all the time. Uh, she just always had a frown. She was always complaining about something. And she just, she's nice to us, but she just like wasn't a n- nice person. But what was strange to me is she, more than anyone else I knew, spent more time doing quiet times or devotions. And I remember thinking, like, what are you doing in your quiet times? Like, I do not understand. But I wonder if she had fallen into the trap that we are all so prone to. As members of an achievement-based society, it's really easy for us to jump up to the behavior steps in our faith and kind of try to do these things that God's asked us to do. Okay, I'm going to be merciful, and I'm going to be, you know, non-judging, and I'm, I'm going to be forgiving. So we go to church, and we do Christian things, and we spout Christian sayings, but it hasn't moved from our head and what we've heard to our heart. And so we just play the part. We muster up the strength to be merciful, but it's not coming from a place of overflow. Because what does this kind of mercy look like? It looks like caring for people that are less fortunate than us. It, care, it looks like compassion for people in pain or despair. It looks like forgiveness and more forgiveness and more forgiveness. It looks like open arms to anyone so that they can experience the same mercy that we've been shown. See, having a heart of mercy shifts the way that we see people, and it changes the way that we interact with them. And when we are mercy, the cycle continues. We receive more and more mercy, and there's more and more mercy to dispense out on other people. Show me a person filled with great mercy, and I will show you a person that recognizes they have already been shown mercy double-fold. It's just a beautiful cycle. Receive and we give, and we receive and we give. And then God says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In Psalm, David prays this prayer. He says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. See, we can do all the outward right behaviors, but if they don't start with a pure heart, then they won't be genuine. Other religions and other gods or maybe even society are like, hey, we're okay with like just these actions. Like do these actions. We don't really understand your heart. But Jesus calls his followers to a different place. He knows that until the heart is pure, we can't truly live lives that are clean and our impact is limited. But here's the truth. We cannot purify ourselves. 
A pure heart comes from the surrendering ourselves to the examination of the Holy Spirit and allowing God to change us and reform us and renew us and restore us. And like David's prayer, we may we begin to ask God to create clean hearts in us. We ask him to show us, hey, what is in me that is not of you? What's in me that's not pure, that is not honoring to you? We intentionally subject ourselves to coming face to face with things like pride and selfishness or apathy or greed or lust. We allow him to show us times that we are justifying our behavior or maybe we're just operating out of bad habits. See, we already hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our hearts are already, it is not because we want to be seen as, as good, but because we truly want to live right by God. And so we ask you, God, please purify my heart. Give me a clean heart because we know it matters. And the promise here, Jesus says, is that in pursuing a pure heart, he says, you will see God. Now, Jesus' listeners may have picked, um, picked up on the significance of this statement. Because most of the time, especially in that day, kings of nations were never seen. Like they were like hidden away somewhere, tucked back in their palaces, guarded by armed men. They didn't just like wander and, and see, the, see the people. It'd take incredibly special circumstances or to be a, a, you know, a significant someone or be, been able to work some loopholes or pull some strings to be able to even see the king. But Jesus says to his listeners, you don't have to be someone or jump through any loops or do a song and a dance. In order to see God, Jesus says, purify your heart. Those who have pure hearts, you will see God. When our hearts are pure, our eyes are opened to God's work. When our hearts are pure, we see the true beauty of his creation and all that he gives us. When our hearts are pure, we love others in a way that honors God and honors people. We see God in people, we see God in our community, we see God at work in the church. As our hearts become more and more pure, we begin to see God everywhere. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. So with pure hearts and with pure motivations, this almost final rung of the ladder calls us to be peacemakers. And a peacemaker is different than a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is like everything, nobody move. Like everybody, let's just stay the same. Don't rock the boat. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's just stay here. But a peacemaker is someone who makes peace. This is, makes action involved. He, he, this is a, a peacemaker, someone who sees chaos and sees confusion and sees oppression abound and steps into the mess to bring peace, not more chaos, to all that is involved. Peacemakers are not hotheads. Peacemakers are not cruel or mean or contentious. Peacemakers are not snarky. Peacemakers are not argumentative. Peacemakers are unifiers. Peacemakers listen. Peacemakers seek to understand. Peacemakers step into other people's shoes and bear other people's burdens. My, one of my pastors, Mike Bro, used the example of a peacemaker as, as kind of describing two people of either a thermostat or a thermometer. And the, what, do, what do thermometers do? They rise and fall with the temperature that's around them. And there are people, and we're tempted to be like this, like we step into in this chaos here, and so our temperature rises, we step over here, and it's not, and we, you know, our temperature falls. But then there are people that are thermostats. And what do thermostats do? They set the temperature. They walk into a situation or a room and say, hey, 
We're going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to set the temperature so that God's kingdom is seen. And when we live as peacemakers, Jesus' promises, people will call you children of God. And if we've gone through these steps, that is an amazing promise. That our lives as peacemakers mean that we are reflecting him. That we are bearing his image. To be called a child of God is of the greatest respect. And then this last one, he says, blessed are those who persecuted. How many of you are nervous? I'm going to make this all fall down. Woo! Hold on. Thank you. Good job, ladder. Blessed are those who are persecuted of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is important to me because it says those are persecuted because of righteousness. So some of us are like, oh, I'm persecuted, but maybe we've done something wrong, or maybe we've been mean, or maybe we haven't, we've, we've misstepped and done, not lived life the way that we should, and we feel persecuted. But this is not that kind of thing. This is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This last statement is as if Jesus is saying, if you do all of these things, if you do the work of understanding that we come spiritually bankrupt, that we come empty, and we've humbled ourselves, and we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we decide to dispense mercy on people, and we're pure in heart, and we're peacemakers, you may still have people that are misunder- misunderstand you. You will be blessed, no doubt, but you might be ridiculed. You might be told, this is all backwards. Some, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit? What kind of church and faith is that? People may say it, or society might say it, or our own, mind, our own minds may tell us that this upside-down thing is crazy. Or we may look around at this world and see the world striving for other blessings, not blessings of mourning, not blessings of being merciful, not blessings of being pure in heart, and it may look easier to chase those things. It may be more rewarding. It may feel like it's more rewarding. We will always feel this tug to live the life of this world. It is enticing. But Jesus crowns all of these statements off with a reminder that when we are persecuted for pursuing righteousness in whatever way, shape, or form, to be reminded that our promise is heaven experiencing, again, heaven is not someday, heaven can be now, experiencing life with God now, here being part of his kingdom come. And notice, and I love this, notice that the promise here and the promise here are the same. In a, in a society that we tend to be like, okay, I've worked my, I've worked my way up, and so what's like the crowning reward forgetting to maybe if I'm persecuted. And Jesus is like, it's the same as it was when you were poor in spirit. I gave you the best down here, and I'm giving you the best up here. It's all surrounded by the reward is the kingdom of heaven. The reward is unity with me. The reward is union with your maker. We don't have to work our way up to it. God's not saying once you get to this point or once you've done enough or purified your heart enough, then you get to experience life with me. He's saying that started from the beginning When you had nothing to offer, I offered you my kingdom. And now I'm just going to remind you when you're tempted to think that this is not worth it or that I've left you or that God is not good, the reward is my kingdom of heaven, which is me. Me living with you. So what do we do with all of this? Because Jesus didn't teach this teaching so he would impress us with his teaching skills Or that we would say one day, that was the greatest sermon of all time. 
He taught us this, and he taught his followers that we could live lives and understand the blessing that comes from him and that we could then help bless others. And it's in moments like these, and especially when I think even about going to church and hearing God's word, that I'm reminded of a quote that I read from Nancy Ortberg in one of her books. This is a quote that has challenged me throughout the years, so I'm going to give the challenge to you. She writes, as a Christ follower, it's easy to mistake intention for action and stirrings for solutions. I sometimes give myself credit for being a pretty remarkable human being just because I feel angry about injustice or pain over suffering or empathy in the face of hurt. But even the strength of my intentions is not an accurate indicator of whether or not I will take the time to act, to put my faith to work, and to be the difference Christ empowered me to be. Defining moments are only as good as the lifestyles they translate into. I'm just reminded this morning and every time that we come together, we don't do this because we want to do church, because it's fun, or because we want to make it ch- check it off our checklist. There are, there's a watching world that watches cars pull into churches every single weekend and are asking, what difference is that making? And the weird thing about it is that as Christ followers, we are not saying if we go to church and understand God's kingdom, we have perfect lives all of a sudden. If that was the case, like everybody would be busting down the doors. Part of our story as Christ followers is that we say, hey, we are broken and we're not going to get it right. But if we don't allow God to do this work in us, then we just become church sitters and we don't become people that are infused with God's Holy Spirit that is actually making a difference. And again, we don't make a difference because we want people to sing our accolades. We make a difference because we understand Christ makes a difference in us. This all matters. And it all starts with recognizing we are poor in spirit. We start by having nothing to offer. And we mourn over that. And we feel the weight of our sin. And only when we feel that weight does what Jesus did for us on the cross even matter. Does it actually make a significant difference in our life? And because of that, then we see you humbled yourself, Lord. You went to the cross. I want to humble myself too. I want to be meek and experience the blessing of that. And then because I am empty, I want to be hunger. I want to hunger and thirst and be filled with things that are righteous, that are right by you, and I want to live right with you. And in turn then, I just, gosh, I'm going to just be merciful because you know what? When I see any eyeball that is, eyeballs, set of eyeballs, that are across from me, I know that this is somebody that has also poor in spirit too. And I know what it's like to have experienced this grace, and I can't help but dispense mercy. When we experience that mercy over and over again, we pray, God, give me a clean heart so I can continue to do this in a clean and genuine way, and so that I can be a peacemaker. This world is chaotic, and we need peacemakers to step in, but only peacemakers that have hearts of purity and hearts of mercy. And then Jesus says, at any time, if that all feels crazy to you, if it feels like you're swimming upstream and it feels like it's backwards, remember, I have offered you my kingdom of heaven. I've offered you life with me. And this should make a difference for us. We should walk out changed. We should continue to purify. We may need to go through this over and over and over again because it matters. It matters to us. Jesus is saying, you will be blessed. And then in turn, take our lives to bless others. Would you pray with me? God, thanks so much for this amazing reminder, this amazing 
challenge that you gave us, that it was preserved for us to study and, and digest and understand and be challenged by. God, I pray that through only your spirit, God, that we would be changed, that we would walk out of here and even throughout this week, God, that you would give us simple reminders of how this impacts us. God, that we would be people that look more and more like you, that we reflect your image, that we would be amazing image bearers of you because you have done so much good for us. Thanks for this time together. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have a great weekend, everyone. Everybody, happy Mother's Day, and join us next week for GOAT.